Pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word, to uh, hear your truth. Father, we pray that as we do that today, you would find us not just receptive to the truth, Lord, but obedient to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As a brand new second lieutenant at Francis E. Warren Air Force Base in Cheyenne, Wyoming, you think Kansas has wind. Um, anyway, uh, one of my first bosses there was a full colonel, a bird colonel named Bob Base. I never called him Bob. I always called him, you know, sir. Um, but uh, Colonel Base, he had this uh, yellow Porsche convertible that he loved to drive around the the, the base there and. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was his car, he was known for it or whatever. He was always diligent, though, to obey the posted speed limits on base and uh, was also a little bit uh, interested in enforcing speed limits on other people who did not feel the need to obey them. And so one day, he's driving his yellow Porsche, and he happens to not have his uniform on this day. He was in civilian clothes, and he saw uh, somebody speeding, and so he pulled in front of this person and stopped them, and he got out, and he said to them, young man, it was a young airman uh, uh, who was in uniform, he said, young man, you are speeding, and uh, you should knock that off because, you know, you can get in trouble on the base. And this young man, this young airman, memorably said to Colonel Base, this full bird colonel, he said, oh yeah, says who? And the colonel, you know, gently reminded him that he said so, and he was a colonel, and, and uh, he probably, the young man should probably listen to what he had to say. And if that wasn't enough, he called the security police, and they came and reinforced the colonel's message to the young man. That Christmas, uh, uh, we had our base Christmas party and our unit Christmas party, and, and I was in charge of the, I was kind of the MC for it, so I bought the colonel a little plastic helmet with a, a, a siren and a rotating beacon on top. I said, sir, you can wear this, and people won't challenge your authority when you pull them over for speeding. There's this basic question that haunts our lives, I think, this question of authority. I mean, who says? What gives people the right to act with authority? And in today's passage that we're going to deal with, Jesus faces this issue, this question of authority. Some people come to him who are trying to trip him up, and they have questions about his authority to do the things he's been doing along the way. And when these people confront Jesus with their questions about authority, they make us ask ourselves, well, who's the authority in our lives? Jesus, of course, acts with the authority of God. He is himself the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And because that's who he is, you and I, we need to submit to that authority. We don't like that word submit, but nonetheless. I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 11, verses 27 to 33. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 1574. The Gospel of Mark chapter 11, verse 27. They, that's Jesus and the disciples, they arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, 
The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, now this is John the Baptist. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. Well, they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, well, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. This exchange that these people have with Jesus, and by the way, they're not coming to him with open and honest questions. They're coming to him, and we'll see in a minute, they're coming to him to challenge him, to try to trip him up. But this exchange opens up this really important question, I think, this question of authority. And so the basis for that, then, is the question about where Jesus gets his authority, verses 27 and 28. Jesus had been doing some very visible things, as if he had the right to do them. Most immediately visible to these people was, of course, the passage, previous passage, where Jesus cleanses the temple. Now, do you remember this story? Jesus walks into the temple courtyards, this place that's supposed to be a place of reflection and worship. He walks into the temple courtyards, and it has been turned into this kind of marketplace. Picture the great American market. That's kind of the place that the temple courtyard had become. And Jesus walks in, and he is not a happy camper about that. And so he begins to turn tables over, the money changers tables over, because the offerings had to be given in the Hebrew coin. So they had to change whatever Roman coin they had into the Hebrew coin to make an offering. So the money changers were there. He turns those tables over. He just generally uh, creates a scene. He knocks these things over. This is just one of the things that he had done, the most recent thing that he had done. He had done those miracles of healing along the way. Pastor Lord just read us... One uh, that uh, occurred, it's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. He'd be doing very visible things as if he had the right to do them. He'd even had the audacity to say to people, I forgive your sins. Now you can imagine this morning that if somebody stormed in here and began to overturn stuff and knock things over, we'd want to know who says they think they have the power and authority to do that. It's kind of the question that Jesus faced. But it's important to underscore their motivation. Because their motivation is the reason Jesus responds to them the way that he does. Back up in verse 11, or excuse me, chapter 11, verse 18, this group of people, the Pharisees, the, the, uh, the leaders of the temple, the chief priests and the elders, this group of people had been conspiring to kill Jesus. They wanted him done. So they come here hoping to trap Jesus into some kind of misstep that they can use against him in a trial. We are in, in the year 2020, the culmination of the latest political cycle. And already, I personally am tired of it. I don't know about you, but I'm just tired of it. But here's the thing that I've noticed about our American political cycles. It seems to me these days that people aren't earnestly interested in a quest for truth with open minds. They're looking for missteps or ways to hold something against their opponent. That's kind of what's going on. 
That's part of the reason why I'm sick of it. And that's exactly what these folks, this chief priests, these elders, and these teachers of the law and the Pharisees are trying to do with Jesus. They are not interested. Their question is not an open-minded quest for the truth. They're looking for a way to trap him. So they ask Jesus, who says you can do this stuff? Hoping that he's going to answer in a way that they can use against him. And how does Jesus respond to these folks? He asks them a question. He turns the tables a little bit. He says, you know, remember John the Baptist? What about him? What do you think the source of his authority and his ministry was? Was it from heaven or was, did he make it up? Was it from earth? Now, in that day and time, it was a common kind of instructional technique that the Pharisees and teachers of the law used. It was kind of this question, 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 question kind of a series. But that's not really what Jesus is doing here. What he's doing, though, is not questioning their knowledge of facts. He is looking for openness of heart and mind. So this highlights this, these, these folks' dilemma, right? Because Jesus gives them two choices. The source of John's authority, heaven or earth. Because Jesus wants to make this point, before we get much further, he wants to make this point. Ultimately, there are only two real choices for authority. They're either internal, we make them up, and we operate by our own rules, or they are external. And in this case, Jesus is pointing to God, and they're derived from him. You and I, we are in need of external reference points. Now, I've heard that it's possible that the Kansas City Chiefs are going to be in a football game next Sunday. (laughs) Personally, I'm not all that invested, but I know a couple of you likely are. But what's one of the things that happens in a football game, right? They score touchdowns. Do the players get to decide if they've scored a touchdown? No. They have to be at that external reference point. They have to go over the goal line, into the end zone. So you think you think I know anything about football, right? They had to go over the goal line, into the end zone. It's that external reference point that says, yes, you've scored. They don't get to receive the ball on a kickoff and stop at the 22-yard line and say, yeah, this is a touchdown for me. This is my truth about touchdowns here on the 22-yard line. Or they don't get to take a, a, you know, a punt return and run it back to the 47-yard line and say, well, yeah, this is a touchdown for me. This is my truth, the 47-yard line. This is my touchdown. The referees, the coaches probably, the people on the stands would go, are you kidding me? The end zone's over there, bucko. You don't score a touchdown until you're in the end zone. Why? It's the external reference point that says, yes, here is where you score. Now, Jesus is pointing out that there are internal reference points and external reference points. There are internal reference points and there is the external reference point, God himself. Now, these teachers of the law are in trouble 
Because if they say that John the Baptist's message was from heaven, then Jesus' obvious follow-up question is going to be, well, why didn't you respond to that message that he gave you? If they say, no, 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 John the Baptist, he was just a country bumpkin and his message was from earth, the crowd is going to lynch them because the crowd had acknowledged the external source of authority in John the Baptist's message. So they realized that everyone had held that John really was a prophet. So they're caught between acknowledging that John the Baptist was from God and therefore owning their own sin or facing the wrath of the crowd. So what do they choose to do? They choose to weasel their way out. What's their answer in verse 33? They say, um, we don't know. Playing stupid, playing dumb. I ran across this the other day on a, on a cruise ship blog. The top five dumb cruise questions Question number one, I have an outside cabin. Will I get wet if it rains? <laughs> Question number two, does the crew sleep on board? <laughs> Question number three, has this ship ever sunk? <laughs> Question number four, how small does your face have to be to get a mini facial at the salon? I can wait for those of you who are still processing that. No, that one was bad. <laughs> Question number five. This is my personal favorite. This is our family's first cruise ever. We have several cabins on different decks of the ship. And our question is, do all of the decks go to the same ports of call? <laughs> Dumb questions. And in this passage... These, this group of people, this group of really smart people, the chief priests and the Pharisees and the elders, the teachers of the law, they choose to ask and respond with a really dumb question. You see, not knowing is not really the case with these religious leaders, right? They, they know, but they don't want to own what they know for fear of the consequences. And then it's another thing to know the truth and to lie about it. You know the cookie monster, right? From the Muppets. I love the cookie monster. Mostly I lust after the cookies that he gets to eat. I love the way he talks. And, and whenever the cookie monster, who is left unattended with chocolate chip cookies, he's going to eat them. And then somebody comes back into the room and says, who did this? And the cookie monster says, I don't know. Their unwillingness in this passage, these two folks' unwillingness to admit the truth about John the Baptist precluded them from the openness of heart and mind to acknowledge the truth about Jesus. Do you see what happened? They know the answer, but they don't like it, so they dodge the question. And so Jesus responds to them pretty reasonably. He says, hey, if you're not going to uh, open up and be honest and come to grips with John's mission honestly and openly, then I'm not going to be explicit with you about the authority I possess. Because in this passage, 
There are profound implications of authority, and it comes up a lot in the Gospel of Mark. It's a key emphasis for Mark as he pens this gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus shares implicitly here, we know explicitly elsewhere. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And therefore, you and I, we are called to submit to that authority. Since the Garden of Eden, People have torn themselves between submitting to God's authority and setting ourselves up as our own authority. But here's the deal. Jesus is Lord. And he calls us to this place called obedience. And we need this habit of obedience in small things so that when the big things come along, our reflex is obedience. If you've been on a commercial flight, an airline flight, you know that the, the, the stewards, the flight attendants, always go through that little speech at the beginning of the flight, right? It's so routine that even they are bored with it if you watch them closely, right? Here's your seatbelt. Here's how to put it on. In case of an emergency, there's a flotation device under your seat. If uh, we need oxygen, oxygen masks are going to fall from the ceiling. And make sure you put it on. And even if the mask doesn't, the bag doesn't inflate fully, that still oxygen is flowing. If you have a little child with you or somebody's incapacitated, put your mask on first and then help them with their mask. You know this, right? If you've been on a plane, you know this. And it's so routine, we're all bored with it. But if we have paid attention and internalized it, that information becomes really handy if in case of a disaster, right? I was on a flight from um, Lompoc, California, down to L.A., Los Angeles, to catch another flight when I was in the military. And the plane I was on was a small commuter twin-engine propeller-driven airplane, and so it didn't fly at the normal 32,000 feet or so that most jets fly at. It flew more down in the 18 to 20,000 foot altitude, which is really interesting when you're flying over mountains that are upwards of 12,000 feet. Because you can look out there and you can say, that's really close. And so we're in the midst of this flight, this twin-engine propeller-driven aircraft, we're in the midst of this flight, one of the engines just stops it seizes up. It didn't gradually stop. It seized up and stopped with a shudder and a jerk. And suddenly, because there was only one propeller driving the plane, we went shifting this way at pretty high speed because the airplane was being pulled in the direction of that one operating engine. The lady next to me grabbed my arm so hard that I had bruised imprints of fingerprints on my arm afterwards. But what happened? All of those reflexes that we had in the case of an emergency didn't kick in. Because people are so bored with the story. They don't even listen to it anymore. People are screaming. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Well, we ought to do what they told us to do at the beginning of the flight. We didn't crash. The pilots did a great job and put the plane down safely. And then they said to the 18 of us or so, uh, they said, hey, we can get another plane in here and fly you down to LA or we can get a limo. What would you prefer? <laughs> limo, limo, please, limo. I'll take the limo. This, 
operating under authority is an important idea. And that authority is expressed to us primarily through his word, through the Bible, which is not a list of prescriptive do's and don'ts and not a recipe for perfect behavior and it's not designed to take the fun out of life. It's a measure of protection for us as we go about his business. There are, you know, if you think of, for example, the Ten Commandments, if you think of those not as, oh, here's a list of do's and don'ts, and my gosh, this is, you know, the whole Christian endeavor is designed to take the joy out of life. If you think of them, though, as little markers of, hey, this is safe territory. This is not safe territory. Boldly impressed markers. I went to Zambia twice on mission trips in uh, we got, uh, one time we went to uh, the Zambezi River, Victoria Falls. Have you heard of Victoria Falls? It's the, uh, these falls, they separate the country of Zambia from the country of Zimbabwe. They're really spectacular. They stood up kind of water walls, and it's really, really impressive. But if you walk out towards the edge of the cliff near the falls, there's this little guardrail, which is about two feet off the ground. And a little sign on it that says, be careful. <laughs> That's not a very helpful marker. In fact, you could trip over the marker on your way to falling into the falls. But God's word is designed for us to be a, a healthy marker. This is safe territory. Be here, God says. Authority. Pastor Laura and I went to see the movie 1917 on Friday. If you like war movies, you should go see it. If you like pictures of courage and perseverance and genuine love, you should go see it. Films like this remind me of why we celebrate and honor our veterans, particularly our combat veterans. But the movie showed something else to me. There are two main characters in this film. Two British corporals, one's last name is Schofield and one's last name is Blake. And they are given this life-saving mission to warn the commander of 1,600 other British troops about the, that were about ready to engage in battle, that they were headed into a trap and they were going to get slaughtered. And so these two soldiers are given this job of going to tell that commander, don't do that, it's a trap, you're going to get killed. And so these two guys, they set off, and they, it's an arduous trek to get from where they were to where they needed to be. They encountered all kinds of trouble along the way, and one of them, Corporal Blake, is killed by the downed pilot of an enemy aircraft that he was trying to help. Schofield, his buddy is dead, presses on with his mission without his comrade, even though he's racked with grief. And along the way, this guy, this young man, he deals with unforgiving terrain, enemy efforts to shoot him and kill him. He nearly drowns in a river that's filled with the corpses of dead soldiers. He's hungry, he's thirsty, he's exhausted. He finally gets to the commander he needs to see. Spoiler alert. Just as the attack was getting underway, and the commander calls the troops back. What was going on there? Perseverance to follow the orders of the one who was in command. That's what was going on there. And that's what you and I are called to do. 
Persevere to follow the orders of the one in command, Jesus. Now, every analogy breaks down, and even this powerful military one breaks down, because the soldier's efforts, we realize, they're pretty much all a function of his own energy and drive and commitment to do what's right. But you and I, you and I, as we fulfill the orders to obey our commander-in-chief, he himself empowers us by his spirit to accomplish those orders. We're not in it by ourselves. It's not a solo endeavor. I don't care what the circumstances look like. Jesus is there with us. He said, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Orders to uh, deepen our walk as disciples of Jesus. Orders to be agents of Christian care and compassion. Orders to reach our neighbors with the gospel. Along the way, you and I, we might be under fire. And I've got to tell you that in our day and time, uh, vocal Christians are under fire. We might be under fire. But we walk with the one who has taken the fire for us. We walk with Jesus. So who's the boss of you? You? Or him? Pray with me. Father, we thank you today. For the privilege, and yes, it is a privilege, of submitting ourselves to your authority. And Lord, I know in my own life that that's a problematic effort, inconsistent effort. But Lord, we throw ourselves on your mercy and grace, because when we choose to follow you, you yourself empower us. We thank you for all the ways that you choose to enable us to accomplish your purposes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.